I'm Linda Rodriguez-McGrabby, and this is Portrait of a Spy, the extraordinary life of the Chevalier Deon, a Vespucci story. Before we begin our story, there are two things that I would like to address. The first is the matter of pronouns. Given the narrative nature of the story we're telling, we're taking a page out of Virginia Woolf's book, specifically Orlando, and we're using male pronouns when discussing Dayon's life when he presented as a man and shifting to female pronouns after her transition. The second is a weightier matter, identity. Dayon's transition occurred in a society that was bound by very rigid ideas of gender in many ways, but was also remarkably fluid in other ways. Whether it is appropriate to think of Dayon as transgender is an open question. The past is a different country with its own cultures and social context, and applying our current ways of thinking to it can be problematic, disingenuous. It is also one that we cannot ask Dayon herself, and that her memoirs, though fascinating, shed little light on. They tell the story that French society wanted to hear. What we do know, however, is that Dayon's transition was a choice that she made positively, proactively. And I hope that this piece does her legacy justice. Prologue, Versailles. On November 21st, 1777, Mademoiselle la Chevalier Charlotte Genevieve Louise Auguste Marie Deon was formally presented to the glittering court at Versailles. It had taken more than four hours to prepare her for her presentation to King Louis XVI that day, but it had taken weeks, months, years to bring her to this moment. Queen Marie Antoinette's own wardrobe director and minister of fashion, the incomparable Rose Bertin, had created Dayon's new couture wardrobe at a cost of several hundred livres. That day, Rose dressed Dayon in wide-hipped blue satin skirts. Her skin was whitened with lead and her cheeks stained red. A towering powdered wig topped her head. In the months leading up to this moment, a team of elite women had given her a crash course in feminine etiquette and how to behave as a woman of rank in the court of the last king of France. Dayon needed that help. She was 49 years old and up until very recently had lived her life as a man, as a dragoon captain, a diplomat, a spy, and an intellectual. Her transformation into a woman was by order of the king himself, the condition that would allow her to return to France after 15 years in England as an exile and a problem. Truthfully, mademoiselle, I do not yet know what I need, she told Rose, staring at her new reflection in the mirror. I only know that it is more difficult to equip a lady than a company of dragoons from head to foot. How Dayan arrived at this moment is a story. A story of intrigue, of resilience, and of an extraordinary plan to design a life utterly unlike any other. Act One, Tonnerre. Charles Genevieve Louis Auguste André Timothée Deon de Beaumont was born in Tonnerre, a small village around 200 kilometers southeast of Paris, in 1728. He was the only surviving son of a pair of minor Burgundian nobles. He left Tiny Tonnerre, however, almost as soon as he could for an education in law in Paris. Sociable, exceptionally clever, and artful. 
Dion impressed the right people and rose quickly through society. By 27, he had made enough connections to be appointed secretary to the French embassy in St. Petersburg, Russia, and the court of Empress Elizabeth. But that wasn't all. Before he left France, Dion was tapped to become a member of Le Secret du Roi, Louis XV's parallel secret service to France's official diplomatic entities. He became, in effect, a spy. The same year that Dion went to Russia, Europe found itself embroiled in a war that pitted France against its longtime rival, Britain. Dion proved popular in the Russian court, not least because he imported and gave away thousands of bottles of French wine, including some beautiful bottles of Burgundy from the vineyards in his hometown. But this was his job. He had been charged with forging alliances with very important Russian courtiers to influence Russia to take France's side in the war. He was also personally responsible for facilitating secret communication between Louis XV and Empress Elizabeth, thundering on horseback between St. Petersburg and Versailles, their private correspondence hidden in a secret compartment of a book. After six years in Russia, Dion had become one of Louis XV's most trusted assets. Next, he served in Prussia as a captain of the Dragoons, an elite mounted brigade. There, the wounds he took and his reputed valor in earning them were enough to earn him further notice from the king. When France began peace talks with Britain, Dion was tapped to be part of the negotiation team. He was there when the treaty was signed in February 1763. Dependable, intelligent, indefatigable, likable, he was then made minister plenipotentiary. This essentially made him the acting ambassador until the real ambassador could arrive. Later that spring, Dion was awarded the very coveted Cross of Saint-Louis. The medal was presented to him by the king during a visit to the court, and he would wear it proudly for the rest of his life. The award had the effect of not only raising Dion to the title of chevalier, but also further underscoring his value to the king. Dion was only 35. For a minor nobleman from a small provincial Burgundian village of less than 3,000 souls, this was a triumph. This was making it. And this was also where things became really complicated. Within months, Dion would be running for his life. Although Dion's public role was to serve the French government and its foreign ministry, he was still a member of the king's secret service. And Louis XV's agenda was not always the same as his ministries. The peace treaty had stripped France of its colonies in North America and left it saddled with enormous debts. Louis XV was desperate for revenge. He wanted to invade Britain to, as he said, challenge the ambition and arrogance of the English nation. Dion received his instructions straight from the king in writing. He was to scout potential landing spots for French soldiers, assess British military capability, and gain influence with the British government's opposition party to affect parliamentary votes. According to the king's letter, Dion was to communicate only with two other members of Le Secret about the mission and only in code. While Dion's public-facing role involved fostering friendship, peace, between the two nations, his mandate from the king was to ready the stage for war. Dion applied his customary energy to both roles, quickly gaining influence in Britain's most powerful social circles, despite his rather limited grasp on spoken English. But in getting there, he blew so much money on importing wine to gift to potential allies 
that the British prime minister threatened to remove his ambassadorial tax exemption. In August, Dayan was informed by the foreign ministry that the Comte de Guerchy would soon be dispatched to Britain to take up the official role as ambassador. Dayan, meanwhile, would effectively be reduced to secretary. This was a blow. The Comte de Guerchy was a man far less qualified and less well-liked than Dayan. While Dayan had been in diplomatic service for seven years and had published two books on political economy, Guerchy had never held a diplomatic post and, according to contemporary French ministers, could not write at all. I dread his dispatches as I do fire, one minister wrote. Guerchy was also not in Le Sucre. Dayan had been warned to keep the king's secret mission from Guerchy at all costs. This also meant that Dayan was now subordinate to a man who was, in actual fact, beneath him in importance to the king. Dayan complained to the other members of Le Sucre, who urged him to be reasonable, flexible, and above all, don't make any rash decisions. But by September, Dayan was resolute. I will always go my own way. Fate has determined that. The bomb must burst. The fuse is at the end of the wick. Too bad for those who get splashed with mud or hit with pieces. Those with the most fear will pull back. The devil take me if I retreat. Just six months after he was appointed France's acting ambassador to the British court, Dayan was fired. His salary was stopped and he was commanded to leave as soon as Guerchy arrived. Dayan refused. Act two, on the run. The Chevalier Dayan was feeling sleepy, dangerously sleepy. It was October 28, 1763, and he'd been dining at the French embassy in London with the wife of his superior, the Comte de Guerchy, their daughter, and several other French diplomatic officers. Dinner conversation had been stilted and uneasy. Dayan was now a political persona non grata, having refused the French foreign ministry's summons to return to France to be disciplined for his behavior. But shortly after dinner, Dayan began to feel very, very tired and very ill. He fled home on foot, feeling as though his stomach was on fire. He went to bed early, reeling, and he was still asleep when a visitor came calling at noon the next day. For the following two weeks, he suffered pains in his head and stomach, vomiting and irritable bile. Dayan wrote to a friend, Subsequently, I have discovered that Gershi caused opium, if nothing worse, to be put into my wine, calculating that after dinner, I should fall into a heavy sleep, that they would put me, still asleep, onto a couch, and, instead of my being carried home, I should be carried down to the Thames, where probably there was a boat waiting to abduct me. This would not be the last attempt to kidnap or even kill Dayon. The Chevalier Dayon had grown increasingly inconvenient in the last few months, and it wasn't only because of his expensive taste in imported wine. Gershie had arrived in early October 1763 and confronted Dayon, reiterating the foreign ministry's order that Dayon leave London at once and go straight to Paris to be chastised. Once again, Dayon refused. By now, Dayon's insolence was well-known and being gossiped about in drawing rooms in Paris and London. This was insubordination. It was treason. It was the talk of the town. After Dayon survived the attempt to poison him, 
Garcia instigated a brutal public attack on Dayon's character through pamphlets distributed around London, to which Dayon responded in kind. Dayon was so skilled at manipulating the fledgling mass print media, the French government resorted to buying up every copy of his pamphlets they could find in a desperate attempt to contain the scandal. But Dayon held the trump card. He had letters in the king's own hand planning an invasion of Britain. Dayon's superiors in Lusucre recognized the danger and saw only two options. Reinstate Dayon in his former capacity, which would anger Gauchy and continue the scandal, or allow Dayon to remain in England as a private citizen and spy in the pay of Lusucret. Any other option would send Dayon and those damning papers straight into the arms of the British government. The likeliest outcome of that would be war, just not the kind of war that the king wanted. Meanwhile, the French foreign ministry, oblivious to this subplot, hatched a plan to kidnap and arrest Dayon. He was prepared for a fight, writing, I have at home no fewer than eight Turkish sabers, four pairs of pistols, and two Turkish rifles with which to give him a Turkish brawl. But before 1763 was out, Dayon was in hiding. He had the sucre papers stashed in an iron safe under the stairs, and if he left the house, it was disguised as a woman. Dayon had no idea that Louis XV had agreed to keep him in London as a spy. He thought he'd been tossed to the wolves, sacrificed on the altar of the king's fractured foreign policies. His honor and reputation in tatters, in fear for his life, Dayon played his only card. He told his superiors in Le Sucre that if he wasn't vindicated and Gershi and his thugs called off by Easter 1764, he would tell everything. Everything, everything. And in March 1764, he fired a warning shot. He published a scandalous book, the first of several promised volumes of his diplomatic correspondence. The effect was explosive. Dayon went from a somewhat minor figure on the European political stage to the central character. King George III could talk of nothing else for days. The book was devoured by newspapers and journals, dissected in cafes and in aristocratic households, in letters between teenage girls dishing about Dayon's treasonous impudence. It was embarrassing, not only to France, but also to the British aristocrats and officials named in the papers. Gershi vehemently denied having poisoned him and set about suing for libel, while Louis XV, furious, saw the book as an act of open rebellion. Dayon's gamble was looking less and less likely to pay off. He was in hiding. The British court had agreed to allow the libel case against him to move forward. His patrons couldn't risk political disfavor to save him. And his own government, his own king, wanted him, if not dead, then at least tucked safely away in the Bastille. But in October 1764, something no one expected happened. One of Dayon's enemies, Pierre-Henri Tressac de Vergy, confessed that Gergy had tried to poison him at that October dinner party. What's more, Vergy was willing to swear in court to it, which he promptly did twice in great detail. The horrible conspiracy is discovered, Dayon wrote to a friend. Gershi's libel suit collapsed. The French government couldn't risk any more attempts to silence Dayon without further embarrassment. 
as the full story was revealed in the pages of magazines and drawing rooms and gossip, the British public began to show their support for Deon. Gershi was hounded by rock-throwing mobs when he showed his face in the streets. In 1765, the British government also took Deon's side, describing Gershi in an indictment as a person of cruel mind and disposition, not having the fear of God before him, but moved and seduced by the instigation of the devil and having conceived the blackest malice against Deon. The case stalled in court, however, under pressure from both the British and French governments to hush things up. And the best part? The fact that Dion had made himself an open enemy of the French foreign ministry actually made him even more useful as a spy, allowing him to entrench more deeply in British society. Louis XV quietly gave Dion a lifelong pension of 12,000 livres a year in exchange for clandestine reports about British politics and handing over the incriminating documents about Le Sucre that he possessed. Dion's next volumes in his tell-all never appeared. And yet, Dion was forbidden from returning to France. The paths to political power, to a position in Versailles, to being an acknowledged person of real consequence, were denied to him. He spent the next decade in exile in London. A charmed, comfortable exile, but an exile nonetheless. Dion's life might have persisted in this kind of limbo, but for the fact that in 1774, Louis XV died. And some, including his grandson and successor, Louis XVI, wanted to see Le Sucre die with him. And that meant that something had to be done about Dion. Act Three, The Transaction. To Louis XVI, who wanted to reform the monarchy, Le Sucre was a reminder of the extravagance, the wastefulness and mismanagement of the previous reign. He wanted to retire Dion, who'd been enjoying a very comfortable pension at the expense of the French government. Dion, meanwhile, longed to return to France, but he had no desire to end up in the Bastille. If his espionage activities came to light, he had no way of proving that he'd done them in service to the king. And he wanted more money. He demanded that the government pay off his debts, a bill totaling an astonishing 318,477 livres. To put this in perspective, the average agricultural laborer earned around 500 livres per year. This was not a trivial amount of money. Louis XVI, calling him impertinent and ridiculous, wanted Dion gone. But Dion still held several damning papers about Le Sucre's intentions. Enter Pierre Beaumarchais, playwright, horticulturalist, fixer for the king, watchmaker, and gunrunner. He was the man tapped to negotiate with Dion in 1775. Dion's demands were threefold. First, he wanted to keep getting that 12,000 livres annual pension that he said that Louis XV had promised him. Second, he wanted the French government to publicly declare that Gershi had been trying to kill him back in 1763 and that Dion had only been acting in self-defense when he published his scandalous book. And third, he wanted the French government to openly confirm him as a woman. That last request was surprising, but maybe not entirely. For the last five years, rumors had swirled in aristocratic circles that Dion, 
who had presented as male for his entire life, was actually a woman. The story was that Dayan had been born female, but forced to become male, first by his father and later by his sense of duty to the French government. One etching that appeared in a British magazine in 1771 showed Dayan clad in little but a tricorn hat, an artful drape of fabric, and his Saint-Louis cross, standing on a box and being judged by a jury of matrons. London betting houses began taking odds, and soon, Dayan was plagued by people who either demanded to know his gender or to see him naked. A member of Le Sucre was sent to verify the rumors. He reported back to Le Sucre's spymaster, the Comte de Bourly, that it was true. The so-called Sieur Dayan is a girl and nothing other than a girl. He has all of the attributes of one and all of the regular inconveniences. How did he know? Because Dayan told him. By now, after decades in diplomatic life, Dayan was well-practiced in the ebb and flow of information of how to slowly leak secrets for maximum effect. Dayan wanted people, especially the French government, to believe that he had been born with female genitalia and forced to live as a man his entire life. That was the only way his eventual transition could work. Dayan laid his plans carefully. It's possible that he believed that becoming a woman offered him a way to reinvigorate his now-dead political career, or failing that, at least escape it. But it was also an emotionally satisfying move. Some of Dayon's decision to transition was informed by his intellectual and spiritual development. Since about 1766, Dayon had become convinced that women were more moral, more righteous, more Christian than men. Though gender roles at the time were often prescribed and rigid, gender itself had a kind of fluidity. At least some intellectuals believed that what made a person a man or a woman were qualities rather than body parts. And it was the qualities that he believed women possessed that Dayan wanted to access by becoming one. Beaumarchais, meanwhile, had his own plot going on. The negotiations with Dayan were not going as smoothly as he had hoped, especially after Dayan found out that Beaumarchais stood to land a huge windfall after Dayan's female gender was made public. London betting houses placed the odds at 7-4 to four that Dayan was a woman, and Beaumarchais had put thousands of pounds on it, quite a lot of money raised from investors. Dayan was disgusted and outraged when he learned of it. But even worse were the subsequent rumors that he and Beaumarchais were to be married. Rumors that Beaumarchais delighted in playing up. Eventually, however, Dayon and Beaumarchais came to agree on the key parts of what would be called the transaction, although Dayon never did get the acknowledgement that Gershi was trying to kill him. On November 4, 1775, Dayon and Beaumarchais signed the transaction, and Dayon handed over the iron safe containing all the sucre documents. A few weeks after he signed the transaction, Dayon wrote to Broly, his former mentor, one-time commander, and superior in Le Sucre. It is time to disillusion you. You have had for a captain of dragoons and an aide-de-camp in war and politics only the appearance of a man. I am only a maiden and would have sustained my role perfectly until death if politics and your enemies had not made me the most unfortunate of maidens. The French government was willing to accept and endorse that Dayon was female. But it was now incumbent upon Dayon to not only be a woman, but also 
an 18th century noblewoman, and everything that implied. Act 4. The Crossing In July 1777, Deon left England and his masculine identity for France and femininity. Mostly. As a condition of the transaction, Deon was meant to return to France in women's dress. But when Deon stepped off the boat, he was still wearing his dragoon captain's uniform. To Deon, the attire of a soldier represented who he was, his pride, his achievements, his identity, as well as his political power. These were things that he couldn't leave behind, and though he'd made the decision to transition to womanhood, he felt that he shouldn't have to give up his uniform. Deon may have thought that he could be recognized as a woman and yet still wear clothing intended for male soldiers and play a role on the political stage. But his resistance to wearing women's clothing caused a sensation in Paris. He was mocked in the press and in comic pictures and songs and ballad sheets that were sold in the streets. And though it was his image being traded, it was the French monarchy that suffered. Advisors demanded that he put on women's clothing immediately. In response, Dayon pointed to everything he'd accomplished throughout his career as a diplomat and a dragoon captain, the cross of Saint-Louis that he'd earned by his years of service, and argued that he'd been a woman when he'd done all those things. Why, when he is now publicly recognized as a woman, should he retire from public life? How can I, dressed as a maiden, serve the king? he asked Beaumarchais. Just as a man, by contrast, I can serve him in war and in peace as I have always had the courage and good fortune to do for 22 years. It didn't work. The king himself, in writing, ordered Deon to remove his dragoon's uniform and appear only in the clothing, quote, suitable to females. It wasn't that Deon did not want to be a woman. Rather, it was that he did not also want to give up everything that had come with his role as a man. He'd built a life as a spy, a diplomat, a soldier, and now, dressed in satin skirts, he'd lose that. He also hated the clothing of women, finding the tight stays painful, inconvenient, impractical, and, quote, too complicated for dressing and undressing promptly. What Deon hadn't perhaps realized was that by transitioning, he would be effectively politically neutered. The French government must have known that, as Broglie said when he found out, if it was discovered, his political role would be entirely finished. The government also knew that allowing Deon to have a voice, especially in the increasingly tempestuous political climate, was dangerous. Enabling his transition removed that danger because he couldn't be both a woman and a person of political import. And this was how Deon found himself, in the days leading up to his presentation to court, in crisis and in the care of the court's most fashionable women. The bad boy must become a good girl, Rose Bertin told him. Deon stared at himself in the mirror. You speak with such certainty, he replied, just as a cannon discharges its missiles. But when I reflect on my past and present condition, I would never have had the courage to go out in public the way you have dressed me. You have illuminated and adorned me with color that I do not dare look at myself. This was not exactly what Deon wanted. Deon's transition, at least in the public eye, was complete. By then, most of Europe knew Deon's story, or at least the version Deon and the king wanted everyone to hear. Born female, Deon was raised male by a tyrannical father who demanded a son. He had excelled as a diplomat and a soldier, but now, the new king and propriety 
demanded that he adopt the appearance of his birth gender. This narrative walked a fine line. It both recognized Dion's achievements, positing them as a kind of heroic overcoming of what would have been seen as the natural limitations of womanhood, but also ensured that Dion's political voice was effectively muffled going forward. Dion's contemporaries were ready to accept the story. The idea that Dion would choose to become female and was not only permitted to transition, but also actively encouraged to do so by the French authorities was frankly unbelievable to many people. Soon after her transition, a journal asked, Can one imagine if Mademoiselle Dion were really of the masculine sex? The government would have had such a bizarre and absurd idea, contrary to all good taste in law, to suggest that he pass himself off as a woman? In other words, that Dion would willingly become a woman was more ridiculous, more dangerous even, than the idea that she'd always been one. At Versailles, Dion was presented to the queen, Marie Antoinette. Mademoiselle, do not consider today as the last one of your life. It is the start of our happiness together and the height of your glory, the queen said, sensing Dion's ambivalence. Your transformation has surpassed our hope for achieving your happiness. Everyone is astonished and your enemies are dispersed and confounded. What more do you want? Watch how everything will go well for you. Madame, Dion replied, Today I realize that the death of my past condition gives life and glory to my present state and to the future for eternity. And it was done. The Chevalier undeniably, irretrievably became the Chevalier. It was a title as unprecedented as the woman who bore it, the first woman to earn it in her own right. Act 5. Return to England. Dion had hoped that her return to France and the embrace of the king would allow her freedom to live as and where she chose. But she was forced to live in exile in Tonnerre, the small Burgundian town that she'd left in her 20s. Her primary company was her elderly mother and sister. If she wanted to leave Tonnerre, she was required to apply for permission from the government. When she visited Paris, an agent tailed her for the entirety of her visit, reporting on her every move. Dion must not, could not, ever become a political player again. Within two years of managing the family's vineyards and properties, Dion wanted out. For a person accustomed to a life of cities and public office, war and diplomacy, dinner parties and salons, fencing bouts and courts and the company of intellectuals, to a life of consequence. Lifeless Tonnerre might as well have been a convent on the moon. The only thing Tonnerre had to recommend it was the wine, and Dion knew that you could get that imported. She began campaigning to be allowed to return to London. England represented not only freedom for her personally, now as a woman living and presenting how she chose, but also as a political ideal. Dion saw England as the richest and freest of all nations, blessed with a modern political system superior to the ancien regime. She'd seen firsthand the dark, despotic heart of the divine right to rule. The impurity of the high and mighty is much more dangerous than in the poor, she wrote. This kind of vice is most contagious. It is to the soul what the plague is to the body. Dion was put off by the French government for years, largely because France was again fighting a war with Britain, the Anglo-French War. But in 1785, 
Dion was once again permitted to cross the English Channel. When she'd left in 1777, it was as an exile leaving the nation that had fostered her, and it was as a man. Now, she returned as a woman. Dion was both celebrated and denigrated in the press. She was invited to drawing rooms and into intellectual circles. London society considered her top-rate dinner party entertainment. They were tickled by hearing a stately woman recounting stories of diplomacy and war. When I was a colonel of a regiment, no, it was when I was ambassador's secretary to the Duke of Nivernais, or when I negotiated the Peace of Paris. But as a woman, she'd been robbed of the voice she'd once commanded. She'd never publish another book or piece of writing on political or economic theory, never hold a public office, never again have the kind of power she'd held as a man. And even as Dion struggled to find a place in English society, the France she'd left, the France she'd once known as a powerful political operative, was rapidly crumbling. If she now did want to return to public life, what could that even look like? In 1792, as France prepared for war with Austria, Dion offered to lead a company of female soldiers to fight the French cause. Her letter was read aloud to the National Assembly. Some laughed, others cheered at Dion's words. I have passed successively from the state of a girl to that of a boy, from the state of a man to that of a woman. I have experienced all the odd vicissitudes of human life. Soon, I hope, with weapons in my hands, I shall fly on the wings of liberty and victory to fight and die for the nation, the law, and the king. The National Assembly politely demurred. Epilogue the portrait. There had been other portraits and engravings of Dion before. Her images often appeared in pamphlets and magazines sold on the streets. An engraving from 1773, for example, depicted Dion as a kind of Amazonian goddess, one breast bared carrying a shield featuring the head of Medusa, a spear in her hand. These reflected the popular perception of Dion praising her as a warrior woman. Others were less flattering. One that appeared in an English journal presented Dion as a kind of half-man, half-woman freak show character. Although, perhaps, Dion approved. After all, a small statuette of this bifurcated person sits in Dion's ancestral home, now a tiny museum in Tonnerre. But in 1791, the Chevalier sat for a portrait. A real, proper portrait. Portraits represented a significant investment of both time and money. They tended to be reserved for wealthier people or, failing that, notable people. The Chevalier was, by now, not wealthy, but she was certainly notable. The Chevalier sits, her body and shoulders slightly angled to the side, her face turned to the viewer. Her light, gray-blue eyes are bright and she's nearly smiling. She is clearly not a young woman, and there are hints of a rugged skin. But this is the face of a person who is confident, content. She wears her now customary black satin dress with the white lace at the neck. On her head sits a black-brimmed hat trimmed in two large feather plumes and a tricolor ribbon, a symbol of her regard and devotion to the new French government. Pinned to her dress, as it is in nearly every other depiction of the Chevalier, is her Saint-Louis cross. 
The portrait appeared in the Royal Academy's exhibition the following year, alongside portraits of duchesses and princes of vaunted members of society. It is, perhaps, as close as any portrait got to depicting her as she wanted to be seen. A consequential, honorable, important woman. <laughs> 